Well, that's a brand new song that was recently released just a few months back, just in time for Dylan's memorial service. And uh, we played it yesterday during uh, a video tribute of his life, and I wanted us to listen to it again today, because ever since Dylan entered eternity this past Monday, I've been thinking of what it must have been like for him when he arrived in heaven. And in my mind's eye, I imagine all the saints and angels there erupted in cheers as Jesus embraced him and said, well done, my good and faithful servant. I think every Christian longs to hear those words from Jesus' lips when we get to heaven someday. And the question I want us to consider this morning is how can we know that that is what we will hear when we enter eternity? I've always believed that whenever someone we know dies, it's a God-given opportunity to evaluate our own life. It's not uncommon for God to use a person's death to impact and transform the lives of those who knew them. I just think there's something about death that forces us to examine the way we're living and motivates and inspires us to make any necessary changes so we have no need to fear that day when we will stand before the Lord to give an account of our lives. I was reminded yesterday of that famous poem that C.T. Studd wrote. He was a British young man who was a a famous cricket player back in the day and uh, came from a very wealthy family, but he gave up all that fame and fortune to become a missionary in some of the hardest places to go in that time, China, India, Africa. And this is the poem that he wrote, just The first two stanzas, it goes like this. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Obviously, Stud was aware of what the Bible teaches about that day when we will all stand before the Lord and give an account of our lives, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed or rewarded for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul uh, puts it this way, kind of an expansion of that uh, judgment day and what that might look like. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, he says, According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it, but each one must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as though through fire. So in light of this reality that someday God is going to appraise everything we've done during our lifetime, we should want to make sure what we are doing with our lives now is pleasing to him and will be pleasing to him in the end. And so this seems like a perfect Sunday, in my opinion, to evaluate, to examine our lives to see where we may be falling short and where we may need to excel still more in our walk with the Lord. Not only do we have the home going of Dylan to stimulate us to live differently, but we also have the beginning of a new year, um, which is when many people typically make resolutions about how they're going to change in the year to come. Um, we know that many resolve to use their time more wisely or to be on time. How's that? Let's just start with that. Let's just be on time. That's a good resolution for all of us, right? To get out of debt or to save a certain amount of money, um, to take up that hobby that we've always wanted to, to, to develop um, or maybe develop a particular skill or ability, spend more time together as a family um, or maybe to pursue uh, some friendships and get them to the next level, um, and there's, of course, obviously lose weight, get in shape, right? That's uh, a common denominator amongst many of us. I think it's interesting, but have you noticed how New Year's resolutions tend to relate to, most, to, to the most basic areas of our lives? It's always something to do with time or money or abilities or relationships or health. Why is that? Why do we tend to gravitate towards those kinds of things? Well, I would suggest to you that there is a God-given sense in all of us that these are the things that he has entrusted to each one of us. And we have the responsibility to use them wisely. We are what the Bible calls stewards. We are stewards of a life. Our life. One life that will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. Back in the Bible times, a steward was a servant. He was a slave who had been entrusted with the responsibility to care for the master's household. And so his job, her job, was to oversee and manage the owner's property and affairs, their house, their finances, the other servants, um, even at times his family, the children. 
And the master would eventually reward or punish that steward based on how faithfully he fulfilled his duty or his obligation. And uh, I'm sure you're aware that Jesus told a number of parables that introduced and illustrated this vital spiritual concept of stewardship. Probably the most familiar one is the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. Take your Bibles and turn there uh, just for a moment. I just want to remind you of this very well-known parable, Matthew chapter 25. And uh, let me just read verses 14 through 30. Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 14. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And uh, by the way, this, was, this parable was told um, as part of the Olivet Discourse, which if you know what that means, it's, it's um, when Jesus went to the Mount of Olives with his disciples shortly before he was um, arrested and, and crucified and resurrected and ascended back to heaven, and he taught them about his second coming and, and what to look for. Uh, what were the signs of his second coming? And so and then he told a number of parables, ultimately, that they needed to be ready for his return. And so he says, the return of Christ, for this is, for it is, what is, it is, it's, it's my return, is like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. In other words, Jesus was about to go on a journey back to heaven. And so to one he gave five talents, to another two, and another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gave five more talents, gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more, but he received the one talent, went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with him. This is, again, a picture of the return of Christ. His master said to him, excuse me, the one who received, verse 20, the one who received the five talents came up and brought, and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. So far, so good. And this this is where the story turns Sad, and the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does not have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into outer darkness. In that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Again, that last verse reminds us that in Jesus' mind, this was a heaven or hell parable. This had eternal ramifications. And I think the basic point of this parable is not to waste what God has given us, but to make the most of us. In other words, uh, be good and faithful stewards. And again, I don't know about you, but when I stand before God at the end of my life, there's nothing that I would rather hear him say than, well done, my good and faithful steward. Again, the question is, though, what can we do now to ensure that's what we'll hear then? I think it comes down to one, one word. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.2, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found, what? Faithful. So if we're talking about stewards, really only one requirement of a steward, only one thing they need to be focused on, only one thing they need to be concerned about, only one thing they need to be thinking about, and that's that they're faithful. Found faithful. That would make a, a great epitaph, wouldn't it? On a gravestone. I'll take that. <laughs> Found faithful. Faithful to the Lord. Faithful to your spouse. Faithful to your family. Faithful to your, your career, your work. Faithful to the tasks that God gave you. Faithful to the church. Faithful to the word of God. I think that's what God desires most in us and requires most from us as his stewards, faithfulness. But I want us to also understand that I think this parable, along with the parable of the minas in Luke 19, are usually interpreted and applied by preachers and teachers of the Bible in regards to how people use the money or the skills that God has entrusted to them, the, the talents. What are, what are talents? Well, they were actually pieces of money in this story, but they could represent a number of things. And typically, that's about as far as we take it, that, okay, it's, it's, it's our money. We need to be good stewards of our money, um, the money that God entrusts to all of us. It's ultimately his money, right? Uh, but also our skills, our life skills, our talents. And while I think that's part of what it means to be a faithful steward, I think there's, there's more to it than that. The stewardship involves far more than just what we do with our treasures and our talents. The stewardship encompasses every aspect of our lives. Not only how we use our money, not only how we use our skills, but also how we steward our time, how we steward our bodies, how we steward our relationships, and even how we steward the truth that God has entrusted to us. So we shouldn't view stewardship as merely a, a, a subcategory of the Christian life, right? We've all sat through a series on 
biblical stewardship. At some point, I've read a book on biblical stewardship, and it's typically about money. It's typically about maybe using your life skills, things like that. But we need to understand stewardship is the Christian life. It's the Christian life. It's, it's stewarding our lives, this one life that will soon be passed, and only what is done for Christ will last. That life, that's stewardship. And if we want to do the Christian life well, and to someday hear God say, well done, I think it's important that we get away from this one-dimensional perspective of stewardship and adopt a, a multi-dimensional perspective. And, and by multi-dimensional, I mean there's, there's more to being a faithful steward than just managing our money. It involves a, a number of aspects, a number of areas in our lives, our lives Uh, I guess, could be categorized into six major areas that require faithful stewardship or faithful management. These areas include our time, our treasures, our talents, our temples, our bodies, our ties, our relationships, and the truth. And as I've been examining and evaluating my own life over the past few days, honestly, I don't think I'm doing any of these things all that well. I don't know about you, but I don't feel like I've been using my time all that well and not necessarily managing my money all that well and not using my gifts and abilities all that well, not taking care of my health all that well, not nurturing, investing in relationships all that well and not being faithful to share the gospel all that well. And so this is an opportunity for you to examine your life and evaluate your life. And I want just to take some time uh, to, to look this morning at these, what we could call six fears of spiritual stewardship. Six fears of spiritual stewardship, time, treasures, talents, temples, ties, and truth. And what I want to do is I just want to read some passages with you. This is not really going to be a a classic exposition where we look at a text and and we take a whole lot of time unpacking the text. Uh, This is more of a topical message, if you will. And I want to just read some verses with you just to set them in your mind and your heart and hopefully for you to take home with you that you can use the verses that we're going to consider this morning, that we're going to look up together this morning, as, um, as a guide, if you will, um, as a reference point to examine and evaluate your own life in the coming days and, and weeks. And so let's look, first of all, at the sphere of time. And we're talking here about the hours, the days, and the months and years that God has given us. Let's begin back in the Old Testament, Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5. Psalm 39, verses 4 and And five, David writes, Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as hand breaths, which by the way, isn't very big. It's the breath of your hand from the point of your thumb to your little finger, the hand breath, right? And my lifetime has nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. 
This passage reminds me of what James said in James chapter 4. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we're going to do this, and we're going to go here, and we're going to make a sale here, and we're going to go to this city, and we're going to go on this vacation. And he goes, what are you doing? You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while. And so David and James, they understood that life is short. And our next breath um, is not guaranteed. And so we should be mindful of that. That the end of our life could happen at any moment. And we need to be ready for that moment. Look at Psalm 90. Psalm 90 here was Moses musing on his mortality and comparing his mortality to God's eternality. And so as he was pondering the the brevity of life, the briefness of life, he says in Psalm 90, verse 10, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Verse 11, who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? I think he's referring back to what he said in the previous verses about why we all die. Because God is angry with sin, and so he punishes sin with death. And because we all live in, uh, we're all sinners who live in a sin-cursed world, right? We all experience death. But notice what he says in verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. In other words, recognize that our days are numbered. And obviously we don't know how many days we have. The Lord has ordained for our lives, but he's ordained a certain number of days for us to live from the moment we're conceived to the time we um, die. And, and so therefore, we need to present to him a heart of wisdom. We need to live wisely rather than foolishly. And that's what Paul was getting at in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and, and, and 16, he said this, Therefore, be careful how you walk or live, not as unwise, but as wise making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In other words, life really could be summed up as figuring out what the will of God is and doing it. What does God want for me to do? And then doing it with all our heart. And so we need to evaluate this sphere of time, the hours, the days, the months, and years that God has given us. Are you being a faithful steward of your time? Not just your the minutes of every day, and, but your time here on earth. How about treasure? Secondly, Again, this one is probably more familiar to us. It's what we're used to thinking about when we, whenever the topic of stewardship is brought up. We're talking about the material resources that God has given us. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, 
God makes it very clear where all of our resources come from. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 16, Moses was reminding uh, the people of God's provision for them during the wilderness wandering. Uh, Deuteronomy 8, verse 16, in the wilderness, he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And so the Lord is the one who provides for us so we can provide for our families, right? And we can provide for others, provide for his work, his kingdom work here at the church and in missions and in other ministries that we might uh, support and contribute to. Turn to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Again, all of these verses are familiar, I'm sure, to, to most of you. But hopefully they'll stir you up by way of reminder this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Again, to look at maybe these passages uh, with fresh eyes, with an eternal perspective. It's as if we're still here this morning breathing in the air of heaven right, Uh, as we've been thinking about death and eternity, and so hopefully we'll look at these with a fresh perspective. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And then here he is in verse 24, bringing this all to its conclusion. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Jesus repeated this Same statement in Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12 in the parable uh, of the the, uh, rich man. If you remember, he was approached by a gentleman who wanted to get his help arbitrating or sorting out some inheritance conflict um, in a a particular family, and uh, Jesus caught a whiff of greed And so this is what he said, Luke chapter 12, verse 15. He said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Even if you're a rich person, it's not about your money. It's not about your stuff. We've all heard it said, right? You've never seen a a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer. You can't take it with you. And he goes on to tell that story, essentially, or makes that point in this parable. He told them a parable saying the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, self, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? 
And he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And those of us that know the Lord are kind of like wanting to move away from that guy. Because we know that judgment is about to fall on that arrogance and that presumption. God had blessed this man, but he gave no glory and honor to the Lord. He never asked himself, well, okay, you blessed me for a reason. What do you want me to do with this this bumper crop that you've given me? But he didn't think about anybody beyond himself and how he could serve himself with that wealth. And so God said to him, verse 20, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. A little bit later in Luke, Luke 16, we have an interesting Dialogue that Jesus has here. Um, and it's really all about, and it's, and it's in the midst of really kind of, a, it seems like a bad example, this unrighteous steward that gets fired. Um, but Jesus talks about wisely investing our money in people and relationships and in using unrighteous mammon the, the, the material things of this earth for good. Notice he says in Luke 16, verse nine, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into the, into the eternal dwellings. Again, don't misunderstand wealth of unrighteousness. He's simply saying the, the, the things of this world, money. He's saying use that to make friends so that when it all runs out, you'll re, they'll receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of what is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Jesus, again, was just simply saying, how you use your money and your material resources tells you a lot about yourself. And um, if you're faithful with that, then guess what? The Lord's going to entrust you with even greater things. But if you're not faithful in the simple things like paying your bills and, and uh, you know, giving to the Lord and, and, and just the the, the basic biblical responsibilities we all have with our resources. Uh, God's like, hey, I I ain't gonna give you any more. I can't trust you with what I already gave you. Why would I give you more? But it's also, it could also be an indication of of the responsibility we get in heaven. We prove ourselves, our our, um, faithfulness now for greater responsibility in heaven. And, And how about this for an application? Will we get to heaven and meet people who will say to us, thank you for giving to that church because it was through that 
church that I came to know Christ. Or thank you for giving to that missionary because it was that missionary that came to my country and shared the gospel with me that I came to know Christ. And so thank you for investing in my life through that missionary, through that church. Through, I mean, it's, it's really compelling to think about. First Timothy chapter 6, maybe one more passage in this, under this category. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with the things, with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And so the question for us is, are we being faithful stewards of our treasures, of the stuff that God has given to us? Thirdly, our talents, our gifts, our skills, our abilities that God has given us. Um, I love uh, Exodus 31. Exodus 31 is a description of the tabernacle. Um, when God presented the blueprints, if you will, of the tabernacle. And, and um, I'm sure Moses was thinking, oh, this is incredible, I, but I don't know how to build this. <laughs> and so God had built into the nation of Israel people with skills and talents and gifts who he had prepared, he had blessed and prepared to build this tabernacle, this place of worship. Exodus 31, verse 1, now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, see, I've called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and in bronze and in the cutting of stones for settings and in the carving of wood that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. And behold, I myself have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan, and in the hearts of all who are skillful, I put skill, and they may make that they may make all that I have commanded you. So God has gifted each of us with particular skills, talents to accomplish His purposes, to build His kingdom, as it were. Exodus, or excuse me, not Exodus, Ecclesiastes, excuse me, Ecclesiastes has a lot to say about work and making the most of, of your life in that regard. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. There is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you're going. In other words, this is the time to shine. Because uh, once you die, it's over in the sense of uh, whatever your hands are finding to do now. Do it with all your might. Chapter 11, verse 6. Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening. For you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. So in other words, just be constantly sowing that seed and, and using your gifts and, and putting your abilities to good use. Trusting the Lord that he's going to use it. Uh, for his purposes, even when you don't see any maybe immediate results. Colossians chapter 3, maybe some more familiar territory here. 
than the book of Ecclesiastes. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And then, of course, we would have to make reference to spiritual gifts, not just natural talents and and skills, but spiritual gifts. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For as just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of, an, of, of, of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And maybe jump over 1 Timothy just for a second to 1 Peter chapter 4. Again, mentions of spiritual gifts here. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as a good steward of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who's serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We, we always say this, It's probably a broken record, but if you uh, are a Christian, you have the Spirit of God in you, and He's given you a gift or a number of gifts for the specific purpose of serving the body of Christ, to build up the body of Christ. And so if you are not actively serving, using your spiritual gifts in the life of this church, then you're not only hurting yourself, you're hurting this body. You're not helping This body, be all that this body could be. And you're not all that God would want you to be. I think, sadly, many spiritual gifts go to waste in some people's lives. Because, for whatever reason, they're not willing to serve. I think it's interesting what Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 Excuse me, uh, 1 Timothy 4, uh, verse 14. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of my hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. In other words, not only, uh, apparently, uh, Timothy, maybe it was his timidity, his, his fear uh, that he had pulled back and he was neglecting that spiritual gift, potentially, that God had blessed him with, that that uh, he had been ordained to, to serve in leadership and to teach in that church. And so he's saying, hey, don't neglect that spiritual gift, Timothy. In fact, take pains with that gift. Be absorbed in it so that your progress will be evident at all. In other words, if God's given you the gift of teaching, for example, absorb yourself in that gift so that you just keep getting better and better and better at it. Or whatever it is that God has given you To serve him. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. Again, he, he repeats this. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. 
And there may need to be some rekindling afresh in your life when it comes to your spiritual gifts. And how you're using them for God's kingdom work. Number four, our our temples. This is simply a, a reminder that God has given us minds and bodies that he expects us to steward well. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price? Therefore, glorify God in your body. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the, what, glory of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, that he disciplined his body He made it his slave so that after he preached to others, he himself would not be disqualified. Paul exhorted young Timothy um, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. He said, to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit. He didn't say it is of no profit. He didn't say it was a waste of time. He just said it's not as important as your spiritual discipline. In other words, don't go to the gym for an hour if you're not spending time, an hour in, in God's Word or, or praying for an hour, right? It's like, where are your priorities? But it doesn't mean, oh, I'm, I'm just going to stay home and have my quiet time because it really just matters. My spiritual life, that's all that matters. And he says, no, bodily discipline is of some profit. Godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, I know some of you guys are like, oh, that's, I love that verse. That's like my life first. I'm just like... I don't need to worry about my body. I'm going to get a glorified body someday. Anyway, I'm just going to wait for that. And it's a cop-out, right, to take good care of yourself, be a good steward of yourself. I think it's interesting in, in 3 John, 3 John chapter, uh, or verse 2, excuse me, 3 John 2, John says, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. So, When John prayed for those that he shepherded, he not only prayed that their soul would prosper, but also that their health would prosper. And so, again, it it matters, right? It matters, and we need to be good stewards of our temples. Number five is our ties, the families and and friends that God has given us. And there's a a long list of verses here, maybe more than uh, any other category, and Again, we won't necessarily look at them all, but just some verses to, to, to spark our thinking, to, to, to stimulate our thinking on the, on the whole concept of relationships. For example, Genesis chapter 4, verse 9. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And of course, this was immediately after Cain had just murdered his brother, and Cain responded, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? And by the way, God never answered that question directly, but the answer is implied. What is the answer to that question? Am I my brother's keeper? Absolutely. And so I think that principle applies to our family members that does God expect us to watch over one another in our families? 
does he want us to watch over one another in the church, our brothers and sisters in Christ? Absolutely. We have a great example in First and Second Samuel of the relationship between David and Jonathan and how they cultivated that friendship. And that was a very complicated friendship. When your best friend is the son of the king who's trying to kill you. They had to navigate that whole thing, right? But they worked at it, and, uh, and they became dear, lifelong friends. And when Jonathan died at the hands of the Philistines, David mourned. And it was said that his love for Jonathan was greater than a love for a woman. That's how deep that friendship was. That wasn't meant to be weird, uh, <laughs> Sounds weird in our day. It's not weird. It just showed the depth of their friendship. Psalm 128, getting into the realm of the family. Psalm 128, verses 1 through 4. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And so, again, God in his word highlights the relationships between husbands and wives and parents and children and brothers and sisters. Of course, Ephesians 5 Wives submitting to your husbands, husbands loving your wives, children honoring and obeying parents, and, and, uh, and parents raising their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, not exasperating them in the process. Um, and then even the, 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 the slaves and the masters, the workers and employees and the bosses and, and, and uh, those relationships that we have at our workplace. And then the relationships we have within the church, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, Paul told Timothy, don't sharply rebuke, rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. He likens, Paul likens the, 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 the church to a family. And those of us, you know, those who are older than us should, they're our spiritual mom and dad. And, and those who are younger than us, they're our little brother and sister in Christ. And, and that's the way we should view the relationships that we have with one another. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, Paul says, the things which, 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 you've, uh, which uh, you've heard from me and trust to faithful men who will be able to uh, teach others as well. Older women should be teaching younger women, right? Titus chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about how we're to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. On the way to church, uh, when we're coming here, we should be thinking, it says, uh, consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Did you think about what could I say, what could I do today to be an encouragement, to stimulate the spiritual life of that, my, my brother or sister in Christ that I know is gonna be there today and that I'm gonna see today? Did you think that way? We need to think that way. 1 Peter 4.9 talks about hospitality, showing hospitality to one another, inviting one another into our homes and loving and caring for one another, meeting one another's needs, building, cultivating close relationship. And then lastly, the truth. The truth. We've been entrusted with the good news of the gospel. God's given that to us and we are to be his 
witnesses. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. We've been learning in Romans. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. In fact, he felt under obligation. He felt a stewardship. He was eager to preach the gospel because he knew it was the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In fact, he mentions that specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 Verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under compulsion. For woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For this, for excuse me, for if I do this voluntarily, I have reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. In other words, I've got a responsibility to share the gospel, whether I want to or not. And in fact, Paul likened it to a stewardship. This was entrusted to me. This was my task. This was my duty. This was my honor. This was my privilege to be called by God as one who's been rescued to go rescue others. Paul himself prayed and asked for prayer in this regard in Colossians 4, verse 3, he asked them to pray for them, for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I've also been in prison, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. So Paul said, hey, pray. Pray that the Lord would just open up doors of opportunity and that he would grant us the boldness to walk through those doors, to take advantage of those opportunities and, and, and clearly communicate the gospel. But notice he didn't stop there. It's just like, hey, it's not enough just for you to pray for the preacher, the evangelist. No, pray for yourself. Conduct yourselves, verse 5, with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you res should respond to each person. In other words, we should live our lives in such a way that we are praying for opportunities, looking for opportunities, taking advantage of opportunities, and as we do, that we would winsomely share the good news of salvation. It's good news. In fact, it's the best news ever. And we shouldn't beat people over the head with it. It's something that we can share with them with a smile on our face. I mean, can you imagine if you had been entrusted with the cure for cancer? Would you be a, a good steward of that if you kept it to yourself and didn't tell anybody else? I mean, you'd be running around trying to figure out ways to, to communicate that. In every possible venue, opportunity, right? And so we've been entrusted with the truth that God has given us. And so are you being a faithful steward of the truth that God has given you? Life is all about 
making the most of what he's given to you. Whether it's 23 years of life that God gave Dylan or whether it's 103 years of life. It's making the most of what the Lord gives you and someday we will stand before God and give an account of how we manage this one life that he gave us to live and everything that was involved in life our time, our treasure, our talents, our temple, our ties, the truth. And if we're faithful in these six spheres of stewardship, I think that we will be doing life well. And when we get to heaven, we will hear Jesus say, you done good. You done good. You stayed faithful. Let me close by just reminding us, lest we go out of here gritting our teeth and clenching our fists and going, okay, I really got to change now. I got, I'm going to do better. I'm going to live differently. And we run off in our own strength. Remember that Jesus exemplified a life done well. But what's more, because he lived his life to perfection, which none of us have or ever will, he also earned for us a life done well. Amen? And so this is not about working your way, doing enough good stuff to earn the right to go to heaven. It's already been earned for us through Christ's life and, and death. Again, just a reminder here that we cannot master life without the help of the master. God never calls us to do anything that he doesn't also give us the wisdom and strength to do it. You cannot do life well in your own strength, in your own wisdom. And neither can I. We need to depend, we need to rely on Christ. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Paul said that he strived, that he worked according to the power, the energy of Christ that dwelled within him. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things in my own strength, in my own... No, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Charles Spurgeon, in one of his daily entries in his classic morning and evening devotion, said this, be ready, servant of Christ, for thy master comes on a sudden when an ungodly world least expects him. See to it that thou be faithful in his work, for the grave shall soon be digged for thee. Be ready. Take care that your affairs are correct and that you serve God with all your hearts, for the days of your terrestrial service will soon be ended. And you will be called to give an account for the deeds done in the body, whether they be good or whether they be evil. May we all prepare for that tribunal of the great king with a care which shall be rewarded with the gracious commendation, well done, good and faithful servant.
pray. Father, it's good for us to be basking in the afterglow of Dylan's memorial yesterday and really years, months of hardship in that young man's life and just watching him suffer well. And um, thank you that we have the hope, the confidence that he is enjoying his reward even now. And Lord, may that inspire us, may that motivate us, stimulate us to make the most of this one life that you've given each one of us. And we don't know how long that life will be, but we want to make the most of that time. And so Lord, grant us grace through the power, through the example of Christ, Lord, to be good stewards of this one life that will soon be passed. May all that we do be for Christ so that we'll last, we pray in his name, amen. Well, again, if you're visiting with us this morning, thanks so much for being here. And again, we want to remind you just to stop by our welcome desk as you leave. Love to meet you out there in just a few seconds here. But uh, if you would like to talk with someone this morning, maybe you have a concern, maybe you have a need, uh, maybe you just need somebody to pray for you, you have a question, uh, we've got a couple of our elders available uh, up front here afterwards. You just come and take some time to visit with them. But uh, appreciate you guys again, just such an honor, such a joy for me. And I speak on behalf of my wife, our family, to be a part of this church. Thank you. Uh, just for striving to be all that the Lord would want us to be. And so uh, we love you guys and uh, have a great week. You're dismissed.